Go ahead and grab a seat. And if you've got a Bible, would you open it to the Gospel according to Mark? That's going to be about 78% of your way through your Bible. And it's one of the four Gospels. We're going through a series now uh, that we're calling the, what are we calling it? The, the most important question ever asked. And it's a question that's asked in the Gospel of Mark. Who is this Jesus and who do you say that he is? So uh, wherever you're at in your uh, journey to answering that question, uh, we're glad that you're here. It's one of the reasons we exist as a community, to help people process and consider this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? So uh, no matter where you're at, we're glad that you're here. Uh, we want to help you think about this, uh, and we want you to be able to do it in community because it's an incredibly challenging to ask and answer those kinds of questions without real relationship, and we'll see that today. So uh, before we kind of jump into this passage, let me, let me get a little crowd participation going. Uh, here's a question I want you to, to think about. I want you to think about some famous uh, brands and the spokesperson for that brand, okay? So let me give you an example here. Uh, Lincoln Motors, famous spokesperson. That's right, that's right. Okay. <laughs> uh, what about uh, Capital One? See, depending on what kind of shows you watch, some of you said Samuel L., some of you said Jennifer Garner. See? Advertisers know you, and they're manipulating you. Don't buy anything. Now, there's another very famous spokesperson for a very famous brand. Now, here's the difference between all those people we just named and this particular person. This particular person was a nobody. Uh, in fact, probably in our society, we would say uh, they were beyond a nobody. And now, you know what? They're quite famous, and I'm sure they're worth a lot of money. Do you know who I'm talking about? Who? Flow. I have a feeling, though, Flo, very talented. Flo, for Progressive Insurance, she probably uh, would be doing just fine without Progressive. I'm thinking of somebody else who really, uh, to be honest, you know. No, that guy's, that guy's maybe the most talented actor of all of them. But good guess. Anybody, anybody know who I'm talking about? Jesus, no. Always a good answer at Sedaris, but you're wrong. <laughs> the Aflac duck, yes. Not a real human being, but close. No. Uh, you guys ever eaten a, a Subway sandwich? You guys know about this Jared character? Isn't that crazy that you all know about old Jared? Now, here's what Jared did. He just loved a company's product, and he just ate as much of it as he could. Well, not as much as he could, but, you know, he only ate Subway sandwiches for who knows how long. Maybe, I think it was like a year. And he lost a lot of weight, and then he became one of the most famous spokespersons of all time. You guys know about this? Now, this, is, this shows us something really, really important that we'll see in the passage today. There's power in getting to endorse 
a powerful brand or a powerful person. And this Jared character, he got the benefit of being asked to endorse a very powerful company, Subway Sandwiches. Now, it turns out Subway's not actually that healthy for you, <laughs> says my urologist. He said the worst thing, he said, I've had some issues with some kidney stones, and he told me the worst thing that you can eat is not McDonald's, um, it's better, you know, it's nothing, don't eat Subway, that's what he told me. So, sorry if you enjoy Subway, but it's bad for your kidneys, apparently. So there's power to endorsement, okay? There's power to becoming a spokesperson, And in the text today, what we're going to see is this exact same phenomenon happening in relationship to Jesus, which is to say that those whom Jesus asks to endorse him, those whom Jesus asks to become his spokespersons, those people themselves become some of the most famous people that the world has ever seen. In fact, I'd argue perhaps maybe 12 of the most famous people that you've ever met. I'm going to prove to you why that's true. Raise your hand if you've ever met somebody named Peter. Just go right, like, participate. Peter. Okay, put your hands down. Raise your hand if you've, if you've ever met somebody named John. Hands down. Raise your hands if you've ever met somebody named James. Have you ever met somebody named Thaddeus? <laughs> yeah, I wish there was more Thads out there, because I actually really enjoy that name. What about Andrew or Matthew, right? And, and we're kind of ignorant to the fact that the only reason that, that those names are so popular or in our culture is because Jesus, at one point in human history, asked this group of 12 individuals to endorse him, to be his spokespersons. And all these thousands of years later, their names are all wrapped up in our shared culture. I mean, even Bartholomew. Do you know any Bartholomews? Nope. Have you never watch The Simpsons, one of the most famous characters in American culture, old Bart. Now, sometimes, you know, they don't match up exactly with the name that they're given, but these are incredibly famous men, and they're famous because this person, Jesus of Nazareth, asked them to become his spokespersons in the world. So let me read the passage to you in Mark chapter 3. So if you're there, Mark chapter 3. We're going to go ahead and read this together. Starting in verse 7, it says this, And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that Jesus was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And Jesus strictly ordered them not to make him known. And so he went up to a mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, 
And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boginais, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So here we have an incredibly important transition in the ministry and the life of Jesus. And if you've been with us up to this point, uh, what you'll realize is that up to this point, it's really been a solo act for Jesus. He's been the one doing all the preaching, all the healing, all the casting out of demons. And here we really have a transition in the narrative, uh, an ushering in of a new season in Jesus' ministry that will require him to adopt a new mission strategy. What we'll see birth, birth out of this unique circumstance is the necessity to no longer do it on his own, but to send out others to do it on his behalf. And what we'll see is that it's not that Jesus couldn't have continued his ministry with the growing crowds, but that his love compelled him to do it in a new way so that he could actually do his mission in the way he always wanted to do his mission. And we'll look at, at what that way is. Now, it's so important to understand the power uh, of this story is to understand the context. I mean, you might, you might just kind of brush through it. Okay, there's great crowds that are coming from all these different places. Uh, but what you have to remember is that there were no cars, there were no trains, no buses, no light rail, no Uber, Lyft, car to go, and there definitely were no line bikes, which is a great way to get around, by the way. If you haven't tried it, give it a shot. It's only a dollar. But these people were walking. They were walking. These roads weren't paved. They didn't have Dr. Scholl's insoles. This was tough to get to where Jesus was. And they were coming from the north, the south, the east, the west. They were coming from all over. Now, Palestine itself, the, this area that, that, that we read about in the story of Jesus, it's about the size of the state of New Jersey. But there's some extreme elevation changes. In fact, to go from Jericho to Jerusalem is like, as far as elevation change, is like walking from here to Snoqualmie Pass. It's a lot of elevation change. And these people were coming from all over. Let me just give you a little bit of an idea of how far they were coming. So when he says from the north, it's uh, talking Tyre and Sidon. So to where Jesus was, which is in Capernaum, that's about a 30 to 50 mile walk. From the east, they were coming from beyond the Jordan River, which is about 80 miles. From the west, they're coming from Judea and Jerusalem. That was about 106 miles. And from the south, from Idumea, they were coming about 180 miles. That's like walking from Portland to Seattle. Walking. That's a lot of walking. That's a lot of time and a lot of pain. And think of the financial cost to go that distance. Think of the loss of wages. The risk of bandits on the road was enormous. And you see these people coming just that they might 
get a glimpse of Jesus, perhaps even touch him, that they might be healed. Now remember, these people are sick and hurting. And so where it may take 20, uh, a normal healthy person could maybe walk 20 miles in a day, probably not so for many and many of these people who were walking great distances to come and see Jesus. I mean, what kind of power, what kind of a message must Jesus have had that these people would come this distance. Who would you travel four, five, six, seven, eight days to go hear speak? Is there anybody in the world or anybody that's ever lived that you would make that sacrifice? That's what these people are doing to come see Jesus. It's so important to, to grasp just his popularity amongst the people. Now, in the passage Ryan talked about last week, the religious elite. They wanted to kill him, and they wanted to kill him because people were willing to go great lengths to come visit this Jesus, but the people loved him. This is his popularity. Now, the next thing you need to notice and understand about this text is this thing that's often called by scholars the messianic secret, and so Jesus is healing people and clearly casting out demons, and he tells these unclean spirits, he says, you're not allowed to tell people who I am. They say, you're the son of God, but he strictly orders them. He rebukes them. He says, you cannot make me known. Now, what's going on here? Why, why, and we see it other places in Mark, why does he tell people not to to tell about him? Well, there's several factors to consider, and and I, I think in each occasion there's some things that are similar and maybe some unique things. No different here. The first thing that's kind of across the board is that it's very clear that Jesus is not going to keep the secret forever. But there's something related to the timing where he does not want people to fully understand who he is right away. And the reason he doesn't want them to understand right away is because he wants to prove to them who he is before he tells them who he is. Because, see, he, he understands that anybody can just say something Anybody could say about themselves that they are the Messiah, but that when he says it, he wants them to remember all that he's done to prove, to preemptively prove that he is, in fact, the promised Messiah, the Savior, the one to come. And another thing that, that you realize when you, when you study this messianic secret is that he wants to wait because the people don't fully understand even what the Messiah was meant to be. See, they had a very narrow, limited view of of who this long-awaited Savior would be, and it was very tightly tied to the idea of a political revolutionary, a military conqueror who would throw out the Romans and take Israel back. And Jesus is Not unconcerned with that, but that's not the primary reason for which he came. There's so much more. And we've seen that again and again, that yes, Jesus wants to heal the sick. Yes, he wants to release people from spiritual bondage. And yes, one day he will come back and rule the land. But there's so much more to his kingdom that he's bringing in. And so he has to try to teach the people before he tells them, because as soon as they know that he is the Messiah, the tendency is going to be to force him into a particular role, 
that might get them sidetracked from actually seeing and processing who this Jesus is. Does that make sense? So Jesus wants to wait to reveal himself fully. He wants to avoid random speculation. He wants to avoid misunderstanding. He wants to avoid false expectations. All of these things are reasons why Jesus tends to want to wait to reveal this truth. But there's one more thing that's, I think, interesting and important about this particular uh, scenario, and that is who is spilling the beans. Now, these unclean spirits are crying out, you are the Son of God. And immediately Jesus shuts them up and says, no, you do not have the privilege, you don't have the honor of revealing my identity to the masses. In fact, only I can give authority to some, for, for someone to reveal that important of a truth. And the reason we see this pop out of the text is that immediately after he shuts down the unclean spirits and says, you're not allowed to share, you know what he does? He calls 12 to a mountain and he appoints them as his spokespeople. I don't think this is a coincidence. I think clearly we see here that, that Jesus is saying there is great honor and privilege to getting to reveal my identity to the masses. And I'd say that for each and every one of us who would call ourselves a disciple of Jesus, that there is great honor and privilege. In fact, it might be the greatest honor and privilege of your life. It actually is. That you get to supernaturally reveal the identity of Jesus to other people in your life. Don't take that for granted. It's a great honor. So if this is what Jesus is doing here, if he's transitioning, realizing that the crowd has become too big, that he cannot accomplish his mission alone, and so he calls the twelve and he appoints them to apostles, he makes them his spokespersons, what does this tell us about what it means to be a spokesperson of Jesus? Who are they? And how do you become one? Does it want to try to answer that for us tonight? Now, the reason this is so important to understand the what, the who, the how of becoming a spokesperson for Jesus is that there's great power. Just like Jared, there is great power when we get to associate ourselves with this Jesus. But there's also great, great responsibility. Because now people are looking to us and they're asking questions of Jesus by looking at us. So there's great responsibility to not only do a good job, but to represent Jesus well. People will scrutinize the spokesperson. That's why you see brands dropping endorsement deals with athletes that fall short of their standard because they realize that their spokespeople are incredibly important to the image of their brand. 
So read with me again the second half of the text today. These are the men that have become scrutinized because they've been appointed by Jesus as his ambassadors. And he went up to a mountain, verse 13, and he called to him those who he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, to whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, James, who he gave the name Sons, Sons of Thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now look again at this word repeated in verse 13 and 14. Appointed. Jesus appointed them. Now literally, in the Greek, this word means made. Jesus made these men apostles. And the reason I bring that up is it's more than just giving them a title. And it's more than just giving them a task. He's actually making them into that which he has called them to. Now, apostles literally means the sent ones. So Jesus is making these men into the sent ones. And we see that those who Jesus sends out to preach the same message that he's preached, with the same authority that he himself has, he makes them everything that they need to be in order to accomplish that mission. I was reading this passage, I couldn't help but think of uh, organized crime. Does anybody like organized crime novels or movies? Yes, thank you, in the back. We'll talk about that later. But I, I thought of it. I actually quite like these sorts of things. Uh, and uh, you ever heard of this term, a made man? He, he became a made man. Well, it's this little thing within organized crime where um, at a certain point, if you become a made man, uh, it's generally a good thing for you. And not everybody can become a made man, but once you, if you can become a made man within a, a crime family, uh, you've got some privileges bestowed upon you. One, it's a great honor. Uh, you should feel a great sense of pride, but you're also given some power. And once you're a made man, for better or for worse, you have the full protection of the crime family. And a made man is traditionally seen as untouchable. You heard about this? Uh, untouchable. And they would often introduce this new made man uh, to others by using this phrase. He is a friend of ours. I thought that's interesting. Okay. Now here's some requirements for becoming a made man in the Italian Mafia. First, you have to be of Italian descent. Second, you have to have a current made man sponsor you to vouch for your character and your loyalty. Third, you have to go through a, a pretty intense process, I would imagine, of carrying out a contract killing, which is referred to as making your bones. <laughs> okay? Then, after that, they do something called opening up the books where they initiate you into the family, where you have to make an oath of a morta, which means an oath of silence. 
Ceremony starts, the mobster sitting at the table uh, has the made man uh, prick his finger, place it on a picture of a saint or the Virgin Mary, and hold it there uh, until it's a perfect match. I'm not exactly sure how this happens. It hasn't happened to me yet. I'm not Italian. The picture begins to burn until the oath of loyalty to the family is completed, and at which time uh, the mobster will speak aloud the oath, as this card burns, may my soul burn in hell if I betray the oath of silence. Pretty intense. And so what does this tell us about becoming a made man or woman in Jesus' family? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Which is hopefully good news. But I'd say this, the benefits are quite similar. Honor, pride, respect, power, and the protection. Plus, Jesus will call you a friend. So what are the requirements to being a made man or woman in the family of God? Well, let's take a look at the text. Requirement number one. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 13. He says, those whom he desired came to him. Those whom he desired. There's nothing particularly special about these 12. They have no special skill, no special title, no special wealth. The the only thing we can tell is that Jesus knew that they were for him. Jesus knew that they were with him. Jesus knew that they cared about what Jesus was doing and they wanted to participate with him. That's the only thing that made these men desirable to Jesus. If you've ever seen the movie The Founder about the foundation or the expansion, really, of McDonald's, uh, you see an interesting thing here. Uh, Ray Kroc, who really franchised out McDonald's, He originally started by trying to find wealthy friends of his who might buy into the franchisee model. And eventually what he realized is that these McDonald's run by these wealthy people uh, were not profitable at all. And these wealthy individuals, they'd try their own thing. They'd do it their own way. They wouldn't follow the formula that McDonald's had proved worked. So eventually Ray Kroc changed his plan, and he started looking in different new places for franchisees. And he started to go hang out in uh, the social clubs of a little bit lower socioeconomic individuals, a little bit more blue-collar, people who had no kingdom of their own, people who hadn't already made it. And he found in these individuals people who were willing to not bring into the McDonald's brand their own expectations, their own identities, their own kingdom, but were willing to trust the vision and mission of McDonald's. And that's really how McDonald's first got going. Men and women who were willing not to bring in their own agenda, but to really trust and follow. That's what we have in Jesus' selection of the twelve. These men had no kingdom of their own. They were willing to follow Jesus, who was claiming that the kingdom of God was being established through him. 
Now again, Jesus and Ray Kroc have nothing in common besides that they understood the fact that it's very hard to serve two masters. And Jesus selects these 12 that were willing to put Jesus' plan and agenda above their own, at least at the beginning. I'm looking at you, Judas. What went wrong? It's not easy. Requirement two is this, that Jesus knew these men, and I'd add that he genuinely liked them. So how do I know this? Well, there's one very fascinating thing that, that, that you see as you read this list of the 12. And I think it's really one of the most enjoyable uh, parts of this passage for me, and, and the more and more you study and you learn about Jesus, the more and more you realize he was just or not just, he was a human being. He was fully human. He loved people. He loved the brotherhood. He loved his friends. And so he gave them nicknames. And you see it right here. I think that I love this because if you know me, <laughs> I love to give nicknames too. It's one of my great joys in life is giving people nicknames. So look again at the list. Starts right here. Simon, whom he gave the name Peter. And here's what we know is that in John's gospel it says Peter or Cephas. Peter was the Greek name, and Cephas was the Aramaic name, which were two languages used at that time in this part of the world. And both Peter and Cephas mean rock. So the most important thing about this new name that Jesus gives to Simon is that he believes Peter is a rock, or Simon is a rock. This is a nickname. He was the original rock. You smell what I'm cooking here? Simon was the rock. Okay. Keep going down the list. You see old James, the son of Alphaeus. Which is just another thing that guys do when referring to their friends by their last name. You know what I'm talking about? What's up, Evanger? Hey there, Farrell. What's up, Gore? I see you. You probably called him Alfie. That's what I suspect. We don't know that. It's not in the text, but. And then best of all, we get to old James and John, who were brothers. And Jesus gives them the most awesome nickname of all. It's like he's naming the original American gladiators. There's Nitro and Laser and the Sons of Thunder, which is just amazing. And these guys get to live their entire life being known as the Sons of Thunder. Jesus is a, is a real human being, and he loved these guys. He was friends with these guys. He, he, he liked being around them. He genuinely knew them. And he genuinely liked them, warts and all. And as a self-proclaimed nickname giver, I can tell you that I only give nicknames to those people that I genuinely like. And if I've given you more than one nickname, it means I doubly like you. Now, if I haven't given you a nickname yet, just wait. But I've been doing this my whole life. 
And I give nicknames to my dearest friends. I give nicknames to uh, people that are, you know, more acquaintance-type friends. In fact, one of my favorite nicknames I ever gave to somebody was uh, at a fellowship group that, that I led, uh, actually with Pastor Ryan back in Denver when we were both in seminary there. Uh, and we gave this young man, his name was JR, and he was in charge of snacks for the night. And as young men tend to do, they, they don't fully think through everybody that will be there men and women, and so old JR brings to the fellowship group uh, a meat tray, just a tray full of meat. <laughs> so, like, well, what else did you bring, JR? Well, I brought this meat. <laughs> and so, you know, poor old JR will forever be known, and now he's known by all of you as meat tray. So, <laughs> I love me some meat tray. He's a dear friend of mine. Uh, and I used to give friends uh, names to my buddies growing up, you know? Guys like Steve Purple Podmore, Matt Pee Wee Reese, Anthony The Real Deal Richardelli, Christopher MacDime McCormick, Josh Cornby Feinerman, Peter Don't Call Me Pete Downhauer, Brad LaBufadora Vanneman, Nate The Don Cooley. And the list could go on and on and on. And many of these guys have multiple names because I genuinely, genuinely cared about them and loved them, and I spent lots of time with them, and that's just what you do when you like people. You give them nicknames. And I give them to the most intimate relationships in my life. Allie has a nickname. My father's always given a nickname to me. To this day, he calls me Sportnort, which I have no idea what it means. <laughs> but for 35 years, he's been calling me Sportnort. And I, in turn, call my son Grayson G-Man, which is, of course, just an easy way because it's the first letter of name. But what you don't understand is that it's a reference to my favorite cartoon hero growing up, which was He-Man. So he's G-Man the He-Man. <laughs> See, there's always wrapped up in nicknames multiple levels. In fact, I got a nickname from Pastor Ryan. I call him Rocksteady. Multiple levels and meaning to that. But it's an evolution of his other nickname, Rhino, mixed with the famed Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, almost villain duo, Bebop and Rocksteady. And so in turn, Ryan calls me Bebop. Feel free. Bebop and Rocksteady. You see, nicknames are important. And here's the point. Jesus loved these guys so much, and he knew them so intimately, that he gave them these nicknames. And usually these nicknames were some combination of their character, their personality, even where they were from, and also who Jesus believed that they could become when they received the power of God. So was Peter actually a rock? Well, you keep reading the story and you realize not quite, but Jesus believed and he spoke into existence this thing about Peter that would ultimately become true when the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he became the rock that Jesus had called him for years. It's the power of a nickname. And by naming these men and calling them apostles, Jesus was sending them out to a new existence, a new mission as spokesmen, as endorsers, as his missionaries in the world. So that's requirement number two. Requirement number three goes something like this. You must know him and spend time with him. So he knows you, and he cares for you, and he loves you. But you must also love, care, and spend time with him and get to know him personally. Look at verse 13. Well, actually, excuse me, verse 16. 
It says, he appointed the twelve. Oh, excuse me, sorry, sorry. Verse 14. And he appointed the twelve so that they might be with him and then he might send them. Okay? Being with Jesus always precedes being sent by Jesus. So think of your favorite spy movie or novel. Someone shows up on the scene claiming to be sent by someone else. What's the first thing that you should ask them to find out if they're actually sent by the person they say they're sent with? Well, don't ask them a general basic fact that anybody could Google. You ask them something very, very personal. Something like this. How does he take his coffee? Cream? No cream? Half cream? It's another one of my nicknames, by the way. Half cream. How does he take his coffee? What color are his eyes? What's her favorite kind of chowder, the red or the white? What's his or her Wi-Fi password? In fact, if you know me well enough, you could come to my house and steal my Wi-Fi. Does anybody know what my Wi-Fi password is? It's the word I say most often in my life. It's one word. Somebody say it out loud. Consider. So simple. You could steal anybody's Wi-Fi password if you know them well enough. Maybe not. <laughs> so it's not enough just to know theoretically about Jesus or to be able to answer, tr answer trivia about Jesus. You have to know him personally to become a made man or woman. You must have personal, experiential knowledge, not just impersonal factoids. Now, if you don't have much of that yet, that's okay. But just know that that's what Jesus is inviting you into. That's what he wants to do for you. He wants you to know him personally. Now, of course, this is going to look different than the way that I know my wife or the way that I know my best friend. But it's still very personal. And it's over and above just knowing about Jesus. He wants you to know him personally. And all of this combined comes together to what I call relationship. Now, if you're taking notes, I'm spelling that intentionally, R-E-A-L-A-T-I-O-N-S-H-I-P. Real relationships. Being personally called by Jesus, being genuinely known by Jesus, and genuinely yourself knowing and spending time with Jesus always re results in real relationship. This is what made Jesus so odd, particularly as a public figure, particularly for his popularity. You remember how far people would come to see him, and he throws all of that popularity, in a sense, away all that momentum to go spend time with 12 dudes that he met in a fisherman's tavern. It's a terrible business strategy. But he cares about that over and above everything else that he would actually know. And so he chooses 12 men to spend the majority of his time with and energy with and social capital with instead of capitalizing on that fame and popularity for his own ends. Because he wants real relationship. Not just the appearance of relationship. Not something that he could just claim on his website that he was about. But that he actually desires it above all else. And he knew he couldn't invest the way he wanted to unless he called 12 to an intimate relationship with him. Now I'm about to go on a rant here. So hold, hold on with me. This is... <laughs> should I go into this? Okay. 
there's this thing that I've been noticing lately about, I love podcasts, by the way, because I'm about to rant about podcasts. I love podcasts, but there's this really interesting phenomenon that's been happening with all the popular podcasts, which is it's not now one person talking, but it's two or three people having a conversation, then recording that conversation, then putting that conversation online, and then allowing us to listen to that conversation. And there's something really great about it, in fact. I enjoy this way of communication better because, you know what, to be honest, lots of us are sort of weary of one-way communication. And this is kind of one-way communication, right? And if you listen to a sermon online, that's kind of one-way communication. Now, hopefully, and very intentionally as a church, this is just one of the things that we do. This isn't all church is. If you think this is all church is, get in a fellowship group. Somebody you met tonight in the four-minute conversation, ask them to go to coffee with you. Because this is just one of the things that we do. But because we're sort of weary of this one-way communication, I think when we hear particularly these podcasts that are people having a conversation, it draws us in. We feel like that's, that's more important, that's more real, that's, that's more the way that it should be. And in a sense, it is. We were created for real conversation and real relationship. And so we consume these great conversations, these dialogues, But here's what I want us to be weary of. Though there's true value in that, though there's value happening between these two people that are recording their conversation, that's not everything that God wants for us. And too often what happens is that these observed conversations of others, they, they almost trick us into thinking that we are actually involved in the conversation but we're not. I don't get to interject. I don't get to ask a question. I don't know these people. And so it scratches this itch that we have for real conversation and real dialogue and real relationship, which is, it's important. God's made us for that. But it also, by scratching this itch, keeps us from ourselves engaging in the real conversation. It keeps us from having real relationships with other people and talking about real things because we are, in a sense, getting to watch other people do it. So don't be fooled by the virtual reality conversation. It's not real. It feels real, but it's just a fainted image of the real. You see, Jesus didn't start a podcast. He picked 12 men to have a real relationship with. In fact, He took the podcast offline. He threw away the book deal. And he went and he started a church. This is how Jesus made his first disciples. And this is still how he makes disciples now. And this is what he asks us and invites us into doing with him, which is to make real disciples. This is what's happening. And all of this is a part of Jesus' mission plan, his missionology, his kingdomology. Remember the flow of the story. The crowd was swelling. Jesus' ability to minister effectively in real relationship was was diminishing. And so he changes everything around and he appoints 12 to be mini-me's and he sends them out to do exactly what he's been doing, which is preaching his message and healing with his power and authority, helping the hurt and the sick and the oppressed, 
That's his plan. And Jesus selects 12 very intentionally. Because if you understood the Old Testament, the Old Testament, God selected 12 amongst the sons of Jacob to create the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus, by selecting 12, is very intentionally saying, God is starting a new thing here. He's redeeming Israel. He's bringing Israel back. He's building the kingdom of God through Israel by a selection of 12. Just like he did in the Old Testament, now he's doing it through Jesus. And he's building a new nation, a new kingdom. And this is always the way kingdoms are built, good or bad. The king makes generals, divides and conquers. And Jesus, like the great kingdom builder that he is, he chooses 12 to start building his kingdom. This is Kingdomology 101. Every great kingdom builder does it this way. You select others to represent you so that your reach might go far and wide. Now at this point, some of you are saying exactly why I don't like Jesus. Exactly why I don't like the church. Why would I want to follow and worship a kingdom builder? Every other kingdom builder I know in the world is the worst. Corporate kingdom builders, political kingdom builders, military conquest kingdom builders, they're all the worst. Why do I want to worship and follow a kingdom builder? I'm totally with you. But I want to ask you to take a closer look at Jesus because I think he's a totally different kind of kingdom builder. And when you look very, very closely, I think you'll begin to trust him and you'll begin to trust the kingdom that he's building. For instance, when we look to Jesus, we see that the kingdom that he is building is not about his fame or his fortune because he never monetizes, he never popularizes his message. In fact, we see him running from that crowd. We see him trading in all the fame for this few 12 smelly, poorly dressed works in progress. He's different, even though he's using similar strategy. Furthermore, with Jesus, we trust that his kingdom is not about his selfish power mongering because of what he reveals to us on the cross. That he said, All these people for whom I'm building this kingdom, they are just, they're not just subjects to me. They are people that I am willing to give my own life to bring into this kingdom. In fact, he did just that and gave up his life for those who might be a part of his kingdom. So if you're still just considering Jesus anew, don't give up on the idea that he is building a kingdom because he clearly is. But take a closer look at what that kingdom looks like. And I think the more and more you you hear about Jesus and you watch the way he conducts himself, you'll start to have your opinion changed. That maybe the problem was just people trying to be God. And what God actually came and did what other people try to do, he did it right. Now, this plan of God to select 12 and to send them out is really what I call the ministry of extension. This is very, very important to understand. 
which means this. Ministry of extension, it, it means that you do not build anything on your own. You do not generate your own power. You do not generate your own authority. You do not come up with your own message. All the disciples are asked to do is to simply extend the kingdom, extend the power, extend the authority, extend the message of God given to those first disciples by Jesus, who is the Son of God. It's a ministry of extension. And so this is so important to realize that you literally don't have to come up with anything on your own, which means that everybody can be a sent one of Jesus. You don't have to have a fancy degree. You don't have to have years of experience. You don't have to have a family name or a title. And you definitely don't require your own righteousness because you get from Jesus each and every one of those things. You get his wisdom and his power and his experience and his words and his title and his name, and you get his righteousness applied to you by faith in the cross and the resurrection. And so you go out and you become the extension of what Jesus started exactly what's happening here. He's saying, be with me so that I can send you out with my message and my authority. Now, uh, if, if, you, if you don't know this about my story, uh, when we started the church, I was working for a company called Inksys, and Inksys did training for power system operators. So <laughs> the power grid, which lights all these fancy light bulbs up that you see here, uh, it reaches all across the country, and there's people that sit in a room, and they control this all, okay? And as I was thinking about this this week, all these illustrations that I have from the time I spent working for this company came to mind. So think of the Grand Coulee Dam. Grand Coulee Dam. Did you know that half of the hydropower that this country has comes from dams along the Columbia River? That's in Washington State, for those of you who don't know that. And the Grand Coulee Dam has enormous capacity. It pumps out a ton of power that is then distributed to tens of millions of people along the West Coast. Some of the cheapest and most environment-friendly electricity in the nation it powers businesses and homes and all sorts of things. But what's so interesting, and if you understand the power grid, the way it works is there are only a few power generation sources. And then this entire network, hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars worth of network, is just taking the power from places like the Grand Coulee Dam and distributing it so that we can have electricity and heat and all the good stuff that we love. And I begin to realize that that's, that's a great illustration of this ministry of extension. And it's so important that we understand that what we are in the plan of God is not producers of our own energy, through our own hard work, through our own intellect. Though we work hard and we use our intellect and we use our creativity, at the end of the day, the thing that needs distributing is the power of Jesus. And there's so much power that we don't have to create any of it on our own. We simply act as power lines, distributing it across the world. That is the great plan of Jesus. Now, 
what I came to realize working for this company and why this, this company I work for even exists is because there are plenty of things threatening the reliable delivery of electricity. There's storms and terrorism and all sorts of things. And so my company helps people plan for these events. And in the same way, in the distribution of the power of Jesus around the world and the message of Jesus around the world, there's all sorts of things that are going to knock you down. And in fact, the whole reason why you, you should be involved in a community like this, why you should be involved in prayer, why you should be reading the Word of God, why you should study theology, all of that is to prepare for those events that are going to try to knock down the power line, which is inevitably going to keep the power and the message of Jesus from getting where it needs to go. We have to find a way when we get knocked down to get power back up as fast as possible. And the best way is by being involved in a real community with real relationships where you're having real conversation where you can allow the people of God to get you back up and running as fast as possible. Because we don't even know how a power line knocked down here affects the customers in California. Or a power line knocked down here affects somebody around the globe from hearing the message of Jesus. Only God knows how he's connected it all together. And he's asked us just to be faithful and allow the power and the message of Jesus to flow through us. And in fact, I asked uh, our resident mathematician, Amanda Johnson, to do some calculations for us. She also has a great nickname, by the way, Amanjo, which is a combination of her two names and a reference to the fact that she played banjo as a child. But Amanjo came up with some numbers for me. Amanda's great, by the way. If you haven't met her, introduce yourself. Um, and it turns out, you know, Jesus selected 12. So I first had her run numbers. What if every disciple selected 12 and every one of those selected 12 and everyone... How many people would be disciples of Jesus? But then I realized, you know, even Jesus didn't get all 12 right. He, he didn't bat a thousand. Old Judas betrayed him. And so let's drop the bar a little bit. Let's just say every disciple had three disciples because Jesus had sort of an inner circle of three, Peter, John, and James. And so what if every disciple from there on out over their lifetime made three disciples? Well, the numbers are staggering. I could share them with you after if you're a numbers person. But we'd blow the world's population over about 10,000 times. People that have ever existed. If three people over your lifetime, you made disciples of. You taught them about Jesus. You helped them experience his power. You taught them to obey all that Jesus had commanded three people over your lifetime. The kingdom would come. Everyone would see Jesus as the rightful king. Obviously, we're not there yet. And so I'd ask you, if you feel like Jesus has called you to be one of his disciples, if he's personally invited you into his mission, he's always going to ask you to do something. And the thing that he's always going to ask you to do is to go make other disciples. That's what a disciple is. Someone who makes disciples. Who makes disciples. Who makes disciples. That's what Jesus started. A disciple-making movement. That's what we want to start at Sedaris. A disciple-making movement. Where people take 
the charge of Jesus seriously to go into all the world and to take his message and to take his power to the ends of the earth? Are you going to say yes when he asks you? And if you're not there yet, that's okay. Spend more time with Jesus. Be known by Jesus. Figure out what Jesus is for. And ask yourself if you want to be for that. And I think over time what you'll realize is that it's the best use of everything that you've been created to be. To literally get to be the power line that flows the grace, the goodness, the mercy, the redemption of Jesus to those who desperately need it. It's a great and powerful promise. For each and every one of us, he has designated a neighborhood, an office, an industry maybe, friends and family who desperately need that power flowing into their lives. Will you do it? Let's pray. Father God, we are so humbled and at times, if we're honest, confused at why this is your great kingdomology, why your plan is to take 12 and to start a movement that would change the world. But if we just zoom out for a second, as crazy as it sounds, what we have to admit is that it's working. That although our sin gets in the way of that power flowing perfectly through us, we see the fruit of your disciple-making movement, that people all over the world know and obey Jesus and serve him as their king and their Lord and their Savior. And so, God, we just get out of the way and we humble ourselves and we say, sorry, God, for coming and trying to take control of your perfect plan. And we come back to it. And we say, help me just to be like those original 12. All messed up, but given the authority and the power and the message of Jesus. Help, help me to be like that, God, in my neighborhood, in my office place, in my family, with my friends, God. Help me just to be the light of Christ wherever you've put me. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. All of this through the power of the Spirit which lives in us. Amen.